Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Woo! Getting ready for a long trip to Indianapolis. Heading out here shortly. 18 days in Indy. We have the GMR Grand Prix kicking off this weekend. Friday and Saturday, a quick little IndyCar event. We have Sunday and Monday with no on-track activity. And things fire off on Tuesday, start of official practice for the Indianapolis 500. We go from Tuesday through Monday, do qualifying over the following weekend, Saturday and Sunday. We have a brief, I think it's two hours or so, practice session on Monday following qualifying for the Indy 500. We have a little bit of downtime Tuesday through Thursday. We have carb day on Friday. Saturday is off. Then Sunday we go and do the 107th installment of the Indianapolis 500. Cannot wait. I think I fly home that Monday night, do the photos for the winner on Monday morning, a little press conference and whatnot, head home Monday night, home for Tuesday, went two days. Then turn around and leave for about 11 more going to the 24 hours of Le Mans. So, yeah, <laughs> this is going to be a busy one, y'all. Uh, legitimately, I don't know even know how many weeks that is. But, yeah, uh, going to be gone for a good long while. And then I think when we get home from Le Mans, I think I'm home for like a couple days. And then head out to good old Wisconsin for some Road America IndyCar. So, uh, life on the road. We're going to find out how much I truly love it here. But nonetheless, looking forward to all this kicking off. We say a big thank you as always to all of you for the great questions that you send in every week for our show. Some of those being comments and commentaries as well to come in. Great thank you to our pal Jerry Suddeth who puts together these questions for me each week. Picks and chooses what he thinks are the best ones puts them in an order that he thinks would be enjoyable and complimentary. And then we go for about an hour. Sometimes can be a little longer, uh, sometimes a little shorter, but that is our general goal. Before we get rolling here, big thank you as well to our partners at Cooper Tires, makers of not just mighty fine automotive rubber, not just for your cars and trucks, but also the truly amazing, amazing folks who power the USF championships. The first three steps of that amazing road that trains drivers from throughout the world to get ready for hopefully a future in IndyCar. And if not IndyCar, who knows where else? But massive thank you to Cooper Tires now. Been with us for a really long time. And we can say the same about the Justice Brothers, makers of automotive chemicals and lubricants, not only a staple in the dealerships, service shops throughout the country, but also an absolute staple in motor racing for a lot longer than I've been alive, forever. Winners of many Indianapolis 500s, winners of every other major motor race you can imagine. So huge thank you to the Justice Brothers for their ongoing support. TorontoMotorsports.com, please visit if you have the affliction that I have, which is a love for motor racing memorabilia, T-shirts, hats, stickers, die-casts, books, all kinds of great stuff at TorontoMotorsports.com. And then our newest friend and partner, also centrally involved in the USF Championships presented by Cooper Tires, that being Discount Tire. <sighs> Hopefully we're going to be doing some cool stuff with them at a great Zoom call today with discount tire so stay tuned on that front but really appreciative of their participation in our show and then to kick us into this week's episode got a couple little milestones just to mention today being may 9th well what was yesterday that would be the seventh anniversary of our podcast launched episode one the goat mario andretti was our guest so many fun podcasts that have followed this i think will be episode 1394 <laughs> so we're at almost 1400 episodes then we also just recently crossed the 9 million download threshold from when we started this show did that last month at some point 
I think we're up to about 9.1 million right now. So we're just going to keep on going and appreciate everything that y'all do for us to make this show possible. So with that said, let me hit a little marker here and do a little music bed intro. And then also uh, our official dumb sound effect. I don't have it on hand, the real one, but I'll give you a little pew, 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 DJ horn. Let's kick off the show here with Robert Polachek says, MP, hope you're well and hope your wife is well and all the appointments you've had recently have gone well. They have, Robert, thank you. Uh, my wife is, is just making incredible progress uh, in our four and a half year fight against breast cancer and uh, some mobility challenges. So, yeah. Road is not totally cleared of obstacles, but uh, it seems like we are removing more and more of them on a regular basis. So thank you for asking to open the show. Says, so did you happen to see the second episode of 100 Days to Indy? And what's your take on it? The differences we saw between first episode and second episode. Uh, the second episode being the hashtag Gen Z Takeover. And thank you as well to all who mentioned that I, I was, quote, in episode two in meaning apparently i was in the background or something like that and i don't know if that qualifies as being in the episode uh but yeah um i actually haven't and admittedly it's sitting on the dvr and i hope to watch it before i leave thursday morning um yeah i'll try to haven't yet um trying to think how to say this in the nicest way possible because it's not meant to be critical just being honest um i want to see what they've done the improvements that they hopefully made from the first episode which had a lot of improvements to make not because the quality of the first episode was poor not at all just this is truly meant to garner new fans new interest in indycar and i just thought episode one was deficient in a lot of ways for that very specific objective and so yeah maybe uh maybe i can get that done tonight and uh yeah maybe the next episode i'll let you know how that registered and also by then i think i should have episode three out as well so i've heard folks say positive things on the topic of younger drivers it being tighter in terms of its focus instead of trying to be 500 things at once so all the feedback I've heard has been positive on this specific theme of attracting new and younger fans. So I'll get back to you here shortly, Robert, and let you know if and what I thought. Uh, let's see. Why don't we go to Drew Galbraith? How you doing? MP, longtime listener, first-time submitter. Ah, one of my favorite things, Drew. Says, is there any update on how us Canadians can catch 100 Days to Indy yet? So I know the, uh, the off track with Hinch and Rossi crew mentioned that there was a Canadian distributor deal in the works, but haven't heard anything other than that. Say so it seems odd. We've been an afterthought as we usually have representation on the grid. We're the only other country to host an IndyCar race. I'll say thanks for all the years of entertainment and have a good month of May. Well, uh, you're welcome. And I will. Hmm. Haven't heard anything specific there haven't heard what our friends mr hinchcliffe and mr rossi might have said on their podcast as for what's making the rounds as a possibility distribution wise separate from the cw and vice channel we know that the app the cw app is a way to watch this i couldn't tell you if there are geo restrictions that would bar you and other fine people from canadia from consuming it that way but the hot rumor is that hulu could be a place for this to land now is that landing once it's over is that landing in some sort of delayed one week after the premiere on the cw i nothing for you there unfortunately i've only heard this rumor that i think others have heard as well i have a call into someone at the series who might know I've actually have two calls into that person, I should say. Uh, I hope one of those two calls into the same person gets returned. And if so, might be able to offer some deeper insights, Drew. 
And thank you, by the way, for sending in your first question. And I hope it is the first of many. Uh, Cy Harrison. How you doing, Cy? MP interested to know if you're hearing anything from the teams about the new Shell renewable race fuel that's being used this year. Is it making any noticeable difference in performance? I know Hinch said on his podcast he thinks Honda might have a small advantage in fuel mileage, but what are you hearing? Haven't heard anything, Cy, to suggest the fuel itself is a source of performance exploitation by one brand, one engine supplier over the other. Honda's fairly well known for being masters of electronic engine control modules. Chevy is by no means a slouch in that area. It's not uncommon for one brand or the other to have the upper hand, whether it's in a particular season or a opening to a season before the other one makes some gains. Would say that Hinch's comment there probably be decoupled from anything related to the fuel itself. One thing I've heard firsthand from the engine manufacturers is this new renewable fuel doesn't pack exactly the same punch as its E85 predecessor. We are E100 now, uh, fully renewable, uh, 100% ethanol compared to that 85 ethanol 15, uh, I guess, petroleum-based fuel, which was previously used. So lacks a little tiny-ish amount of explosive boom compared to the E85, but we certainly have not seen that manifest in any kind of problematic way in terms of performance, right? Lap times being slower, top speeds being down, anything like that. So credit both Chevy and Honda for adapting to this new fuel and finding all the ways to have their engines perform just as strong as ever. Why don't we move on to Eric Franklin? How you doing, Eric? You say compound question around McLaren. When we're opening a question with the word compound, well, you just, you're plucking at my heartstrings, Eric. So it's moving into May. I'm interested to know how much of McLaren's oval performance last two years is due to incumbent knowledge came with the acquisition of SP being Schmidt Peterson. How much comes from the seemingly huge amount of engineering support they're throwing at their cars. Let's see, uh, you say another podcast that includes a driver from the team, uh, stated that they took a hundred plus people to barber. McLaren worldwide using IndyCar uh, as their bench now. They can't have, uh, since they can't have a nearly unlimited engineering budget for F1. Haven't really heard that uh, on that end. Um, I don't, can't tell you how many people they brought to Barbara. I can tell you that uh, of that 100, it seems like 50%, whatever the number happens to be, of folks walking around in McLaren papaya orange shirts. Half of them are from marketing, uh, if not a little bit more. So uh, they are hardcore on the marketing promotions, customer, sponsor, client services side. That's without question. I'd say it, it... it's worth a little bit of a clarification here, Eric. Uh, yes, McLaren is the majority owner of the team. For all I know, they're 100% owner now and have been from the outset uh, when the announcement of this uh, investment was made. But this is Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports with Aero McLaren, with McLaren Racing added in compared to this being McLaren racing with some legacy Schmidt-Peterson people. This is the foundation, vast majority of the engineering side, infrastructure side. Um, This is the team that we knew 
by and large prior to McLaren's involvement. So if we think about Pato Awards race engineer, Will Anderson, been there for years, came up through there, um, was there prior to McLaren doing great things. Obviously, he and Pato, a wonderful connection. Uh, Craig Hampson, newish to the team a couple years ago, right? But, uh, I mean, he certainly has had a very positive influence on the team. No question. He's not somebody that McLaren brought over from the UK on the F1 side or otherwise. Craig has worked for a lot of people in the paddock, always been an IndyCar guy since the 1990s. So uh, this is just a veteran and somewhat decently traveled race engineer who moved over from Dale Coyne Racing to Aero Peterson Schmidt Motorsports uh whatever it was called, uh, however many years ago. I generally have forgotten. Taylor Kyle is someone who'd been there from day one. He left at the end of last season, obviously, team president to go to work for uh, Ganassi. Uh, Gavin Ward did come from F1 many years ago, but went to Team Penske, was there for however many years, three, four years, something like that. Won a championship with Joseph and wanted a new and greater challenge that Penske wasn't willing or able to offer at the time. Uh, Arrow McLaren was, and so he went on gardening leave for about six months, waiting for his uh, contractual blackout period to end, and then moved over to the team. And with Taylor's um, moving on, he was elevated to the top position there. But again, Talking about someone from Canada who did good stuff in F1 at Red Bull, but left F1, came to IndyCar, found great success, and then moved over to Aero McLaren. So there are certainly more folks that have come over from the UK to bolster the team. I'd say the majority of the ones that stand out more on the mechanic side compared to big engineer uh, roles and such. And I'm not saying mechanics can't have a really strong influence on the team, but ultimately, as long as the cars are assembled correctly and the setup information passed down from the engineers are applied correctly to the cars, um, really it's in that senior management, team management, vehicle engineering and special projects layer where you dictate a team's either rise or fall or holding of station. In this area specifically, Eric DeClose would say that we're talking more a lot of IndyCar veterans who've come on board and or were already there. Uh, Nick Snyder's another one who's been with the team forever in a lot of big roles, um, engineering side, a lot of really good people there uh, but just want to be clear in saying that this was McLaren buying into a very strong and capable organization that needed an infusion of cash an expansion of their resources and capabilities technical is, is really the big area amplify what they bought compared to hey, we bought this thing and we just need to fill it with all our people, then it will become good. That is not the case, which makes me kind of proud. Uh, let's see. Ian Keyworth, how you doing? This is with all the hype about the Formula One race and qualifying formats, would IndyCar ever consider a format change? Say, indeed, has IndyCar ever experiment, experimented with unusual race weekend formats? I'd like to get your thoughts. Um... I can't really think of anything that falls under experimentation, Ian. During the heights or depths of COVID, there are obviously some pretty hardcore adjustments. I'm not talking about the no fan side, but just the, hey, uh, we're going to get down to business really quickly and get into the race really quickly and then go home really quickly. So, Again, I don't know if that was an experiment so much 
as just their adjustment to limiting time on the ground, potential exposure, and so on. Other than that, and I'm sure I'm forgetting about something, at least in the modern-ish era, other than standing starts, which were tried for a little bit, if I remember, I think it was 2013, I think Toronto was the first time it was tried, maybe. Um, didn't go super well there. I think we did a double header. Was that a double header as well? Um, you know, we tried that a little bit. That didn't really get too far, so that went away. Um, I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but it's been a while. The strangest qualifying I can recall, I think it was Charlotte, 1997 Indy Racing League. Hope I'm not getting the track wrong, but was there for that where... I don't remember the exact duration, Ian, whether it was one flying lap of qualifying on the Charlotte mile-and-a-half oval, or if it was two. Um, I'm forgetting the exact details of it, but in the name of trying to be entertaining with the Indy Racing League penetrating NASCAR's holy ground and holy circuit there at Charlotte, uh, they decided it would be amusing to do a pit stop in the middle of qualifying and i forget what it was I, if i remember i think it was two flying laps and then you had to come in and do a pit stop and race away from the box to whatever line happened to be set out um, might have been the start finish line extending across into pit lane but you had to charge out of the pit box and then cross that line and it was your total accumulated time that set the grid position. For those who want to confirm this, and again, I'm, I apologize, but I'm going off of memory of something from 26 years ago that happened once <laughs> and was considered a clown show and, and epic failure. But yeah, uh, the, hey, qualifying is how fast you can go on the track and now on pit lane. Um, yeah, so we did that and I seem to recall we did fairly well. I seem to recall there was a question as to whether we sped on pit lane. Um, whatever it was, I think we qualified really decently for this little Thomas Knapp Motorsports Genoa racing IRL team that we had. And we were like, I don't know, four races old by then or five. I mean, we were brand new team, but we did better than anyone expected. I think there was a question as to whether we may have sped on pit lane. And remember inaugural IRL co-champion Buzz Calkins' dad, is it Brad Calkins, I think? Anyways, uh, walking past him on pit lane as we were pushing our car backwards away from wherever Greg Ray, you know, stopped and got out and cross that that timing beacon line and uh yeah again i think we were just pushing the car back and getting it out of the way because next qualifying run was going to happen and yeah uh buzz's dad father of the reigning co-champion whatever you want to call it uh was like yelling at the top of his lungs cheaters cheaters and like we didn't really know him but we knew him because we came from many years in Indy Lights, and uh, Buzz came from many years in Indy Lights, and Buzz, who's a very nice lad, um, was certainly not blessed with an inordinate amount of talent driving race cars. Um, we kind of knew the Calkins family a little bit, just from familiarity of being in the same paddock, and it was like, um, wow. You guys are really feeling yourself there, Mr. Calkins, because, you know, I guess I was going to say no disrespect, but it might be a little tiny bit, but like, hey, you've never distinguished yourself at all as a team. Um, and I'm proud that you're, you guys and your son were the co-champions, but let's not turn this into like you guys are like crazy big standard bearers of winning and success, and you're trying to shout down and admonish a smaller, younger team that, may have just done something that you felt was wrong or by deceit. It was just one of those things of like, 
hey, if John Menard is yelling, cheater, or, you know, pick another high-caliber IndyCar team, kick-butt IndyCar team, it wouldn't be great, but at least you'd go, all right, they've earned whatever opinion they have, even if the opinion is wrong. Well, Ian, uh, I don't know if any of us felt that Mr. Calkins really was the person who should be shouting at anybody for doing well because doing well was really their thing so much. Uh, but yeah, so maybe that's it. Maybe mid-qualifying pit stop performances. Is that the thing we need? Okay, it's not. I, I shouldn't have even asked the question. Uh, Jeremy Bullard, say, hey, huge Graham Rahal fan. What are the chances of him becoming an Indy 500 only driver? The team continues to struggle. See, I think if they could figure out qualifying, they would be fighting for top threes, but they always have too much ground to make up in the races. What are your thoughts? He also says thanks and well wishes and safe travels. Thank you, Jeremy. There's a rumor going around here recently. I had a couple of drivers, IndyCar drivers, say, hey, what have you heard? Have you heard? What do you know? Suggesting that Graham was going to retire after the Indy 500. And based on conversations with Graham, um, I knew that wasn't the plan. Um, but I still rang him and spoke with him a couple days ago just on the, hey, man, I, I keep getting asked, and not by jokers, but like, you know, people you're racing wheel to wheel with. And he said, no, not retiring after the 500. Um, do I think there might come a point in time where he's an 8,500 only guy? Maybe here's the, since that's the specific question, not so much on the, when will he retire? Might he retire angle? Uh, I know how busy Graham happens to be with all of his businesses and everything in his life that only gets busier. He is the exact opposite of the Jersey Shore driver core uh, that does the proverbial gym tan laundry every day over and over and over again as basically the, uh, <laughs> the, the one and only things they pretty much do when they aren't driving race cars. He's not that guy. He has an ever-increasing number of businesses. Family seems to keep growing. A lot of charitable endeavors that he's really committed to and he's also husband father and etc etc then he also is a full-time professional race car driver who also has found a lot of the sponsors that are involved with the team uh looks after those sponsors develops more if we're talking about hey scott dixon it's not as if he has no other activities in life, but hey, Scott, you by comparison have a much more straightforward life away from the racetrack. Could you see doing the Indy 500 only after you retire? Assuming he would want to. He's a guy where I'd say lifestyle-wise, without a doubt, could absolutely do that without it being a huge interruption, Jeremy. Graham, I just would have some concerns of like, he knows that he can't be working 70 hours a week with everything else. And then two weeks before the start of practice decide, oh, hey, uh, I should go to pit fit and try and get myself, you know, in great shape. And right, like I just, that's the thing that stands out here for Graham. Whenever that might happen, um, I am curious to know if all the other interests in life which we would assume would fill in that time vacancy without him being an indycar full-time right he's not just going to have a lot of extra time on his hands he's going to fill that in with stuff are you able to open the door back up to training and getting ready for the 500 and being locked in mentally and all these other things that not being involved full-time might make a bit of a challenge but as for if things continue to struggle, will he decide this is his final year? I hope not. Uh, mentioned this a few times on the show, I think somewhat recently. So 
I won't go in depth here again, but I just want to see him retire or step away from full-time, whatever it ends up being, in a good place. Not a place of the last couple of years sucked, and I have nothing positive to tack on at the end before I move away from doing this as the, the main thing of my life. That's the part, right? The life part. I'm not saying he could never come back and do it full-time if he really felt the need, but this is it, right? You have one life, <laughs> and he's had a lot of success. It's been a while since he's had that, that success. I just know that having to spend the rest of your life feeling like, yeah, man, we achieved some cool things, but I'm leaving feeling like more of a failure than a success. That's just the thing I would not want for him. So I know the team will get its engineering issues sorted. One of their three full-time drivers, that being Christian Lundgaard, and his race engineer, Ben Siegel, they seem to be pretty darn locked in. If a RLL driver is going to have a good weekend, the odds are it's going to be Lungard in that number 45 car ahead of the others. So it's not as if they lack capabilities or decent results. It's just rarely more than one car. It could be two on occasion, but seemingly it is never three. And that's where the fixes need to come in. So Graham's obviously the lightning rod for this, Jeremy, right? He's the veteran, true veteran in the team, the biggest name, so on and so forth. Everything seemingly points to him. For his sake, I really do hope that they had a misfire last year, almost season long, from the engineering side just not being fast enough, made some pretty sizable changes this offseason, and a bit of a misfire again. Not as bad, but also not as good, nearly as good as what was expected. So is it just a case of give them a little bit more time? Hopefully. I do think this weekend's Indy Grand Prix could be a, a pretty cool and important one for them to get things back on track. Uh, but I don't necessarily see Graham immediately switching to Indy only if this year goes poorly. Also, famous last words. Uh, let's see. We are, uh, yeah, we're not too far away from the finish here. I'm going to do as I do sometimes and speed to the end and work backwards. Todd Hudson say, MP hope you're well. You say Japanese super formula, Australian supercars. Now Argentinian touring cars. You say what unexpected series will be next in producing a full time IndyCar driver. I'm going formula drift, Todd. That's gotta be it, right? Uh, no, or I could be wrong. Um, I, that is a great, I love the, the recognition here. Um, for sure, we've proven that there is not only one path to get to IndyCar. Not as if that's something we just learned, but I mean, talent's talent. It's just a question of whether it's transportable. There are some drivers, without a doubt, who are phenomenally talented, but they're the full measure of their talent limited to the specific kind of cars that they've come up in and maybe built their name in as well. Jimmy Johnson's a perfect example. Give Jimmy another year or two an IndyCar, and yeah, I think he could be on the verge of running top 12 to 14 everywhere, but I'm talking 12th, 13th, or 14th, not first inside the top 12 uh on the outer reaches he learned a ton showed a lot of aptitude in a short amount of time fairly if not extremely late in life late 
late in his career. It's also clear that despite making massive headway and learning so much in such a short amount of time here, Todd, it never clicked. There was never that I am one with the car. I know what it's going to do. I trust everything that's happening. I'm ahead of the car, right? No surprises. I know that I can push this hard and it will stay and I can go a little bit farther and maybe wrangle it a little bit, but I'm never going to be surprised by what it does because I'm one with the car and, and, and ahead of all of its decisions that it might roll out. Never got there. That's the one thing that stood out. So does that mean Jimmy's a bad driver? Of course not. He's one of the greatest ever, ever in NASCAR. Just not a case where his talent necessarily transferred 100% from stock cars to Indy cars. So that's where this is just so fascinating. Scott McLaughlin, right? Proved to be one of the great Australian V8 supercar drivers of all time. Nothing to suggest that he would pick up IndyCar as quickly as he did. And then also as impressively as he has. And yet, what have we found? This guy who, if he never drove for Roger Penske, if Penske never got involved in that series and he just kept driving for the Stone Brothers or who knows, and just spent his whole life there, sure would have won championships, sure would still be a legend for whatever manufacturer he's with and whatever team or teams. We would have never have known, though, that he had the skills to go do something as crazy and different as IndyCar and go chase down and beat the best repeatedly. I know we're still looking for his first big oval win, but if you can beat Joseph Newgarden and Will Power multiple times, your teammates, right, in identical equipment, the guys won, what, four races over the last 20, is it? Think about that. <laughs> We've had, now, what is it, 20, 21 races now? Whatever the number is uh, since he won his first race at St. Pete in 2022. Um, it might even be 22 races. I don't remember. My math is not good. But whatever the number is, that is a really cool and amazing number. And the fact that he is as crazy good as he is just tells us that to your exact point, is there a Albanian F3 championship we should be looking at? Or Hungarian rally car? I don't know. But we should look because there's a reason to look because It'd be silly to pigeonhole a McLaughlin, a Polo, an Augustine Canapino. Um, man, we're living in a pretty rich time here in IndyCar, aren't we? Thanks for sending this in, Todd. Uh, let's see. Fred Melky mentioned uh, 100 Days to Indy, asking about all the journalists that have been on the show. Say so you've been following... IndyCar for 40 years. Say none of them really ring a bell. That's not a you know, not a problem, Fred. Um, say they should have at least you or Kurt Cavett on the show to lend some credibility. Um, kind of you to say. I I got to admit, I am really happy I am not involved in any way, shape, or form. Um, I realize that. Y'all might be accustomed to seeing me as a IndyCar reporter more than anyone else and might do a lot of video content specific for the outlet or outlets that I'm involved with. But yeah, um, having seen, yeah, having seen what it is, I can tell you that I am stoked to just let it, be created and be what it is and go live in the universe without my involvement and truly uh i'm a happy guy uh, you say also can you imagine if robin miller was on the show uh yeah yeah that wouldn't happen <laughs> uh 
not in the Penske Entertainment era where everything is scrubbed and polished and uh, vanilla. No, uh, Miller ain't vanilla. I ain't vanilla. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Ed Joris, you say, I assume most of the big hitters in IndyCar have a special Indy 500 only car that gets thoroughly massaged and breathed on before practice opens. Say, so if that's the case, why would Marcus Erickson use his, quote, every race car by choice? Uh, I assume that he still gets a special slick transmission. Uh, yeah, so Marcus doesn't choose what chassis he gets, nor does any driver really choose what chassis they get. Um, the teams choose what happens. So, uh, yeah. Um, uprights, suspension uprights, uh, for sure, with uh, wheel bearings that are as free of friction as possible. Transmission as well, as you mentioned, all of the, the bearings and the races and the everything that, not the gears themselves necessarily, but uh, all the other frictiony items, the, the spinny, super spinny bits uh, where there might be any kind of mechanical drag, uh, those all receive a lot of time and effort to reduce as much that drag as possible. So yeah, that part is normal for every car, just most teams i would say a lot of the teams do dedicate indy 500 chassis specifically uh that have the the body perfect body fits done everything as air quote perfected as possible including on the mechanical side and the friction side that are preserved but not every team does that and you know not every team that chooses to use the same card every round necessarily suffers some sort of performance deficit but for sure the teams who do not go to the ultra links to remove all mechanical drag and all aerodynamic drag uh, they do suffer so that's a game that i mean again 95 98 percent of the teams are are dedicated to and i think this year might even be 100 percent uh knowing that the able motorsports team is been busy doing all of those drag removing items on the car that they got uh that was last run by top gun motorsports top gun racing i should say uh where none of those things were done so i think we're going to be at 100 percent mechanical and aero smooth perfectiony type builds for this field of uh 34 entrants that'll get pared down to a field of 33 starters uh jameen tuttle mp is indycar still looking at an event in argentina being an exhibition race you say i don't know all the ins and out but it seems like a waste if it isn't part of the championship yeah i'm with you um that's among the questions that i have waiting to uh ask penske entertainment um if you're going to go that far to your exact point, it better count for something. And if it's not going to be an, a points paying race, then boy, it better pay, <laughs> better pay well financially for the teams. Uh, that's one area where if there's any pushback, that might be one um, doing international events. Keep in mind that even going to Canada is considered a, a quote international event can be tough jameen when it comes to selling sponsorship it's why it's not uncommon even in 2023 we will see a couple of cars at the toronto indycar event that have weird sponsors weird meaning ones we've never seen and or we haven't seen them on the car before um but we've at least heard of them or had a little bit of familiarity with what they are but you go oh where'd that come from uh you also get some i have no idea who that is and that's because a tends to be a smaller to medium-sized team uh strikes some sort of deal like really crazy deal where you go whoa you just sold primary sponsorship for seemingly pennies on the dollar but otherwise it would have been zero so rather than eat the entire trip uh, you've been able to offset that with, you know, 50 grand, 100 grand, 75. Who knows what it is, but it's not a ton. 
but it's truly just done to make sure that that trip is not 100% lost. So yeah, uh, that's why sometimes the enthusiasm to do international races is a little bit limited. Um, so yeah, I'm going to try and learn more about this last in-depth conversation I had was with Ricardo Junkos on this, I don't know, month, month and a half ago. And he was really enthused about the possibilities, but again, uh, seems like there's more than just enthusiasm needing to get this over the line. Andrew Miller, it seems like it's been a while since you've written anything on schedule expansion plans for 24. If we get one new race, is that second IMS road course race history? Or is the, uh, IndyCar NASCAR doubleheader going to be around for a while. You say hashtag me personally. I'm hoping for the former. Yeah, I need to weigh in here, check in, do something involving an in, Andrew. Uh, get a feel for if and where there might be any greater direction coming for next season on adding an event or replacing an event. I did ask, I think around Long Beach just on the general topic of, hey, been a little bit, a couple months since spoke about this, any developments, was told no. Uh, we have nothing that has happened in terms of something becoming more firm or less firm than it was last time we spoke. So do know, as I wrote, that the series does look at that second Indy Grand Prix date, the one that they're now sharing with NASCAR on the road course has been identified as one to lose if they can add some cool stuff elsewhere. Or I think it's also not just a case, Andrew, based on the impression I received of, oh, well, if we're able to sign a new event somewhere, then that's going to go away. I just think it was more of we don't want to explode the schedule and just start having a whole bunch of races so I think it was just more a case of like, look, if we can add one or two cool new events, you know, we might end up taking one off the calendar. Um, 19 races is what they've continually told me is a number that they like. Maybe as many as 20, but not wanting to uh, venture too far beyond that 19 number. And so, look, if they could add a, Milwaukee at a Mexico, you're at 19. If there's a decision that taking one away is needed, we know that the uh, second Indy GP weekend for sure is a possibility. We just discussed Argentina as a possibility. So hope to have a little bit more info for you uh, by the end of the month at minimum. Uh, Jeremiah Morell, you say, am I crazy to hope for rain on Friday and Saturday to watch the new wet modification uh, in use this weekend? By the way, taking a look at the calendar, and it does indeed, Jeremiah, look like it's going to be wet Friday and Saturday. So just for you, you also say a wet to dry to wet race sounds spectacular. Pack an umbrella. Bring an umbrella and sunscreen. <laughs> that sounds very much like Indiana weather. Yeah, well, the uh, new rain vanes could indeed get put to use here. If you're not familiar with those, you might visit Racer Magazine's YouTube page. Did a feature on video piece on those from Barber. So, yeah, um, I hope we do as well. We've had four unique races so far. Is it four? Am I on crack? My numbers off? They may be. I forget how many races we've had, y'all. Um, it is four, isn't it? St. Pete, Texas, Long Beach. Ah, I keep getting numbers off because my brain, uh, the Indy Open test felt like an event. Um, we've had one of everything so far. Four very different types of races. So the, I guess the only thing that's missing, well, actually two more that's missing, a full rain race, but also a rain dry some sort of mixed condition race so looks like we might be getting that brother jeremiah and please give uh your amazing bride sarah uh, our love as well let's see what else do we have here a couple more and then we are going to say farewell 
What do we go with Michael Bragg? Michael says, is there a realistic possibility of Elio becoming a five-time Indy 500 winner? How lost Marshank Racing seems to be this season. I would say absolutely so. Um, I've had two dreams, and this is honest. I've had two dreams. One of them is that Elio wins the Indy 500. Meyershank Racing wins the Indy 500. And I've had another dream that Christian Lingard wins the Indy 500. I had the Meyershank Racing slash Castro Neves winning dream, I think like six or seven times over the past couple of months. And I have no idea why. Like truly, couldn't tell you why. But I was fully convinced like, okay, uh, apparently I know where to place my bets. And then out of nowhere, I had a dream that Lundgaard won. And it was a really short, brief, uh, almost no detail dream. So I don't know if that means Elio just got bumped uh, from victory lane. Uh, I don't know what happens. Is there a tie? The first ever Indy 500 tie where both I, both win. I don't know. But yeah, so... Just remember, if you you heard it here first, uh, it, this Pruitt guy had a couple of crazy dreams, but by number, Elio certainly won more frequently in those dreams. So I don't know what any of this means. It's probably just the biggest kiss of bad luck they've ever had. So I apologize in advance. But yeah, if either of them win, if Christian Lingard wins, which would be the most random, crazy, bizarre thing. If we look at the folks we expect to win every year, um, I, we're really, truly just going to point to uh, this little May 9th podcast is like, okay, uh, we already knew I was touched, not necessarily in the right way. Uh, like, you know, a little bit off, but yeah, uh, I'd definitely be qualified as being touched in the brain. If, uh, I somehow managed to predict a Christian Lingard Indy 500 victory, all based on a really random, like 30 second dream. So there you go. Uh, let's see. Mato core. You say happy month of May to your cats and your wife. Say, what does it take to switch from the road course to the oval from a track standpoint, moving some interior walls? What else? I assume we're talking about the Indianapolis road course. So do they run the same number of safety staff, et cetera, at all the events or more for the Oval due to the sheer speed up? Um, great question. Uh, I do have all my list of things to learn about and hopefully do a video on is this kind of thing. I uh, would say for sure that uh, we will have more folks on demand, if not on site, on the medical side once we get to race day for the Indy 500. I know it's not a huge difference in entries, uh, but we're looking at what 27 ish for the Indy GP and 33 for the Indy 500. So not sure if we have any extra vehicles, uh, for that, but yeah, um, I hope to find out and get some, some deeper answers here because it is certainly a point of curiosity and I need to learn more. So thanks for the question there. And I will try and get an answer here, and it will probably come in the form of a video. Uh, let's see. Kyle Lisk, want to know some of the uh, financial side of things. Uh, I need to check in here on uh, the very specific tire lease question because the last time I knew that number was about two years ago, and I want to get uh, the most current number. So... Uh, hold fire on that. Uh, JJ Gertler, how you doing? Say, Marshall, happy month of May. He said the alternate tires at Barber had red sidewalls. He said, does Firestone only run the uh, Wyoli green sidewall tires on street circuits? And is there any intention to expand their use in the future? Uh, I do believe they are primarily street circuit uh, intended. And yeah, with with how things are going in the world of motor racing, I would have to imagine anything involving greater sustainability and greenness will win out uh, very, very quickly. 
So do I think we could be bidding farewell to Firestone slash Bridgestone's traditional red banded alternate tires for green banded uh, tires using Wyuli in the sidewalls? Yeah. And could we see Wyuli moving beyond the sidewalls? I'm sure at some point in time, but yeah. Uh, Brother Gertler, they, they got a green thing and promoting something that is green or greener using the color green I mean that to me is just kind of a no-brainer of where things are going we're going to close the show with our friend zach dean and i've got a little note here at the end of the show and this is specific for pruday members you should know about this already but i'll, I'll mention it in just a moment before we say farewell uh our pal zach says i'd like to get your opinions on versatility mp a NASCAR driver, Landon Castle, ruffled some feathers early last week by saying NASCAR drivers are the most versatile. So I like to think IndyCar drivers can compete with anyone in any motorsport. And their SRX success shows that. What do you think? Yeah, you know, sometimes people post polls or questions or raise topics like this on social media. And, you know, is it to truly spark a debate is it to just state your opinion but present it in the form of a question but really you're not so much curious and without a fully formed opinion but you're thinking about something and you came to a conclusion so you want to put it out there but again you never fully know everyone's motivations for such things i know that couple of y'all pointed me to it and i didn't go all the way down the rabbit hole but i wandered down it a little bit and um yeah uh (laughs) it was funny um it seemed like whenever someone offered a suggestion that uh he either hadn't thought of or i don't know what he agreed and said that their thought of what form of racing uh was most versatile was correct and i got to admit that i kind of closed out of that window when someone said sim racers are the most versatile and he agreed um no disrespect to our sim racing brethren but you have to drive actual race cars in different discipline real ones on real circuits to then enter the debate as to which ones are the most versatile because if there's one thing that levels the conversation it is not having to do it real and in person in the different tracks different track surfaces different vehicles different everythings there's a real world experiential thing that has to happen in order for us to say aha this is what makes this sport of racing this discipline a finer producer of versatility so i think the most versatile driver that i can come up with which should be no no mystery is professional rally drivers wrc driver uh if we think about the different things that they have to master going from dirt mud ice snow gravel and tarmac there's just nothing there's no higher degree of versatility required for the average rally driver to have to master but if we're talking about the greats it's the ones who win everywhere where you go okay so that's different than indycar where every single track we go to is paved now we do have five different types of tracks that we go to so that's phenomenal right street course road course short oval intermediate oval super speedway these are five very different types of tracks each one of them demands different things from the driver than the other Obviously, there's some similarities between a street course and road course, right? 
a highly skilled road course driver is going to excel on both. Uh, intermediate speedway, a uh, you know mile and a quarter, mile and a half, two mile, whatever. Not too far removed from a two and a half mile Indianapolis Motor Speedway, right? If you can race well at Texas Motor Speedway, you can definitely race well at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, same is true. If you can do well on a, a Gateway or an Iowa, you can do well on a Phoenix or name something else that's round about a mile in length, maybe a little shorter, maybe a little bit longer. But would say IndyCar is certainly up there would say more so possibly than NASCAR. And that's not because I know IndyCar and IndyCar is my jam and NASCAR isn't, but it is interesting though. Name the success stories in the relative modern era, last 20, 30 years of a fully developed, fully skilled IndyCar driver to go to NASCAR and have success. Tony Stewart's the one example that comes to mind. He wasn't a road racer, though. Granted, came up in karting and certainly had some skills there, but when he left for NASCAR, he was a Indy Racing League oval-only series champion, and that's where he honed his talent, short ovals, short tracks. This is a guy who spent most of his life going in circles, and so moving from open wheel circles to stock car circles. Not a surprise that this supremely talented guy who really mastered this type of track was able to succeed at all the various really small to really big NASCAR ovals. We've seen for sure NASCAR drivers become extremely adept on road courses in recent years. There's been a huge amount of education going on, ton of time on simulators to make that possible. It's no longer a case where a road course ringer can show up at a whatever NASCAR cup event, chuck the thing on pole and run away and hide. We saw Jordan Taylor qualify fourth on his NASCAR cup debut at COTA didn't fully process how hardcore the racing style was going to be and went backwards. It got beaten up and roughed up, but at least on pace showed us that like, okay, well, you know, uh, for a guy with no experience doing this, it's pretty clear that, uh, you're, you know, in the, the elite of those in NASCAR who do have some degree of road racing skill, but Anyways, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel really good about saying if you're an IndyCar driver, you're capable of winning on ovals and road slash street courses. You are among the most versatile in the world. But, and I'm not necessarily talking about does everything transfer, you know, does a Sebastian Loeb win IndyCar F1 or NASCAR races because he's a billion-time WRC champ? Not necessarily, but I would just say that when I think of the diverse array of skills a WRC driver, a top-flight WRC driver, has to develop to then be at the top and win any and everywhere they go, that's just a different thing. Then you throw in the one other thing. uh, There are no safer barriers (laughs) in the WRC. right i mean i know they've tried to make improvements over the years but it's hey so you've got to blast through here at 99.9 percent maximum speed and if you get it wrong you run into a tree at 140 miles an hour or go flying off a cliff or name the thing that permanently injures you or ends your life like just the risks in which these feats of insane diversity are being performed it's always just historically been something where you go within professional driving the cream of the crop in the wrc pretty much always been held up within again the best of all drivers sitting around if they had to look at the one group where they go yeah y'all are just different (laughs) i don't know how you do it i'd never do it 
it would scare me to death, but y'all are just on a different planet from the rest of us. And thank goodness. Cause I don't ever want to visit that planet. It's the, uh, the top WRC drivers. Uh, that's our show. Hey, we're doing a little thing here Saturday night. If you are a Day member and you are going to be in Indianapolis slash Speedway, Indiana, there is indeed a very special event that has been organized for after the race. Uh, it is for Day members. And so if you are a Day member, I realize I'm probably telling you something you already know. And if you aren't and you want to be a part of the Day and you'd like to join in, uh, send an email to Rocks P-R-U-E-D-A-Y-R-O-C-K-S at gmail.com, Rocks at gmail.com. It is the listener group that is formed around our podcast. Uh, I'm not a part of it, not a member of it, uh, right? Dad should never, like, be at the, at the kid's party. Like, y'all have fun on your own. Uh, but, yes, indeed, we're going to be getting together here Saturday night after the GP and just having a little bit of fun. And uh, your Day member card, hard card, will indeed get you a fine little discount uh, on the, uh, the goodies we're going to be enjoying. So, uh, hope to see you there. Myself, and my racing family co-host, Chris Wheeler, we will be there. Can't wait to see many of you and looking forward to launching a really busy, but hopefully amazing month of May and then June. So I'm Marshall Pruitt. Thanks again to all of you for your questions. Thanks for your support over the last seven years the nine plus million downloads we've got going on into our partners at Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Discount Tire.